Business in the Okanagan Matters. This is Law Talk with lawyers Clay Williams and Tanvir Gill from FH&P Lawyers, LLP. They talk business and take your questions at podcast at fhplawyers.com. Now, here's Clay Williams. Hi, Tanvir. Hi, Clay. How are you today? Good, how are you? I'm doing great, and we've got a really cool topic today, and our guest is uh, Shane Gardner. Welcome, Shane. Thanks for having me. So Shane is one of our litigators, and so we thought it'd be fun to uh, talk to one of our experienced litigators about the interaction between business agreements and litigation. So uh, where Tanvir and I are, you know, spending a lot of time putting agreements together, you tend to tear them apart. I tried my best, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so we thought, let's let's chat about some of the, the things that you've seen and some of the ways we can make agreements uh, better and how our clients can uh, perhaps run their businesses better to avoid litigation. And, and litigation is one expensive thing, I guess. I mean, it's uh, the one thing that we try and avoid. Yeah, what yeah. What is the average cost for like a seven-day trial? A seven-day trial? Yeah. I'd say somewhere about 50000 60000 something wow. like that. Jeez. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Yeah. It almost so buy a house these days. Uh, where? A quick where down payment. Where would you payment? buy a house yeah. for $50,000? <laughs> yeah. I mean, down I payment, I mean, I can't yeah. think of a, yeah. what kind of a house you'd get for $50,000 nowadays. Nice box on Leon. I don't know how. <laughs> Clay's you'd carriage have to house. Go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't. No, you're not touching my carriage house for $50,000. You get to rent it for that. So... Uh, <laughs> So in any event, uh, so let's let's chat. So uh, I guess Tanvir and I spend a lot of time uh, writing agreements. While we're writing these agreements, we're always trying to think of of making them so that they're clear, they're unambiguous, so they don't get into court. And and have you seen uh, what happens when they're not clear and, and unambiguous? I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you definitely want to be as clear as possible. Uh, any ambiguity or any uncertainty is a bit of a breeding ground for issues. So you want to do your best to spell things out clearly. Make sure you have your performance obligations listed down. Uh, if you have any confusion with them or any uncertainty yourself, make sure you get a lawyer. I can't stress that enough. Um, you want to make sure that you understand what you're getting into and what you're obligated to do. And you really want to make sure what your penalties are. Uh, if you don't understand, you might be uh, a little bit more risk adverse and, and decide to do things you shouldn't do. But if you have a very clear cut indication of what the penalties are for you not meeting those performance obligations, usually it'll steer you in the right direction. So as clear as possible, as easy to read as possible, that, that should help in the long run. And one of the other things that I, I think it's really important to stress is from Tanvir and my perspective, we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And of course, I'm talking about tax. Mm -hmm. One of the things we'll always, we always stress in the show is bringing in uh, a, a proper uh, tax advice while you're drafting agreements as well. Yeah. Yeah. Accountants will give you advice as to how to structure a deal, allocate, you know, a purchase price. There's so many different variables that an accountant will help us out with, but we want to make sure that the agreement properly references them. And also throughout a, you know, 70 page share purchase, we want to make sure that the ref references to certain sections are correct um, because we're continuously referencing the accounting in an agreement. So if all of a sudden, you know, page 40 of 70, we're referencing the completely wrong section that could lead to litigation because it's just not clear. Yeah, I've seen that myself when there's a dispute over the type of accounting standards when they're uh, misrepresented or misapplied in terms of performance on a contract. 
I think from my perspective, it's always important to bring someone in who has a little bit of professional experience in the industry in which the agreement is going to operate. They can give you that type of advice that appreciates the nuance of the situation. And I think that really pans out in the long run. I remember doing uh, deals for a gentleman, and uh, he says, you know, I always do my deals. I just sit in and I write them out, and this is land deals, and you're allowed to do this. You don't have to use the, the actual forms. As long as it's in writing, you can do land deals. Anyway, he would just sit down and do a land deal in a, with a pen and paper on a napkin, and he said he did that for years until the, the time that it didn't work, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. But it's so expensive when it doesn't, so it just boggles my mind why you wouldn't go and get professional advice for your agreements so let's say we already have an agreement that's been drafted we have a client that's purchased a business and now let's say we we have a real issue they've purchased this business the seller's gone off and started the exact same business under a different name and you know it wasn't clear in the contract there wasn't a non-compete for example and now they are directly competing against our buyer what are some of the steps that you could take prior to actually having to go to court what would you try to do in order to avoid litigation generally Right. So I think it starts even before, I think it starts before you even kind of get it in or entered into that situation. You'd hope that any person would recognize the type of issues that can come forward in the future, but I appreciate they're a bit of a different circumstance each time. I think it starts with good documentation. You want to make sure that all your records are in order, all your communications are in writing. That helps identify a certain level of expectation. You can rely on that versus a level of subjectivity that might cause issues. And then within the, someone saying, they told me they wouldn't do right, that. Right, right. And then also within the contract terms themselves, it goes back to being very clear and very unambiguous about what the performance obligations are and what the penalties are. Avoiding litigation is a bit of a tricky circumstance, but you can always look to alternative dispute resolution measures to help you stay out of the courtroom. You can always consider mediation. And in fact, a lot of the clauses and contracts now include alternative dispute resolution terms, which state that you may be subject or bound to a certain levels of arbitration, or at least an attempt at mediation before you file a claim in either Supreme Court or civil claim, anything like that. So there's certain levels both that are preemptory, where you're looking at good record communication, good transparency, things that will kind of keep the level of expectation common amongst everyone who's involved. But then also post-dispute measures, which you want to sort of look at considering things such as mediation, uh, arbitration, and just negotiation between the parties. Uh, the cost of litigation is is extreme in a lot of circumstances. And again, I can't stress how important enough it is to go obtain legal counsel or some type of professional that might be able to give you a better sense of how expensive it would be if you don't come to the table and try to negotiate a resolution otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know what? I have a lot of clients that sign off on share purchase agreements before they even walk in to see their own lawyers. Like the last one I saw literally was a purchase agreement it said this is going to be a asset purchase slash share purchase and then it had maybe like five more terms and then they had circled share purchase <laughs> that's the one i was that's like is one. this is this real or right. are we done this is what we agreed to and there was nothing else and then they handed over a hundred thousand dollars as their deposit and so yeah. it's so much harder when we get stuff like that because then we're almost working backwards and hoping that we have a lawyer on the other side that agrees that we need a proper agreement drafted and so that is the the it, clear concise contracts would be very important yeah like if you relate business contracts to family contracts like an interspousal agreement the legislature mandated that you need to get some form of 
legal independent advice beforehand to make sure you understand what you're getting into. And I think everyone should sort of download that same type of thinking to any purchase agreement as well. Mm -hmm. You might not be required under the legislature, but the same reasoning behind that requirement applies to business deals as well. Mm -hmm. You want to know your rights and your obligations before entering into anything so that you can perform correctly and you don't wind up having to call someone like myself crying, trying to figure out what's going on and paying a bunch after of money the fact, yeah. after the fact. Yeah, exactly. I think you kind of hinted too. Uh, so there's not only the formation of the business relationship, uh, it's also the way you, you deal with your business in an ongoing fashion. So, you know, some of the things I think when I think of litigation avoidance and uh, would be things like, uh, you know, keeping good records and, and that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you must have some stories about people who come to you and say, well, you know, this happened, and but if there's no records, that must make it a lot more difficult. It's a he said, she said case, right? Yeah, exactly. I have a, I have a file right now that I'm working on where it's a shareholder dispute, but there's no shareholder agreement. And all the correspondence between the two disputing shareholders was apparently all done in person. So right now it's complete he said, she said. And if you're a claimant, the civil standard of civil law is not beyond a reasonable doubt, but on a balance of probabilities. And the court is going to have to determine which of you is more credible than the other. So if you don't have any written records to rely on, it's just a question of one person saying one thing, one person saying the other. And you might be caught in a stalemate. But if you have some type of record keeping or some type of transcript to rely on, well, that's going to be your smoking gun if there's a dispute that you can't resolve. Yeah, in, in my mind, it just seems to be common sense that if your business is one that is uh, maybe doing renovations or doing something like that, take a lot of pictures. You yeah, know? absolutely. You don't cost anything, anything nowadays. Yeah, and, your uh, phone's got a camera. Boy, at the end of the day, that's going to be give you a record when you say, yes, I did do that or no, that wasn't there. You know, yeah, absolutely. Like, like in a construction context, which is what I mostly practice in, you know, quantity surveying is a big portion of the claims that we do. And if you take pictures ahead of time, you're going to save yourself a ton of fees and having someone come and review the property. But if, if you take a very accurate timeline and current pictures of everything that's happening, it's really going to help you. So I agree. I think a proper accounting, pictures, photographs, anything you can get your hands on or anything that you can keep in a database as the business relationship evolves is, is a great idea. And good communication. I mean, yeah, communication is the one thing that, uh, you know, we see a lot of is when people aren't communicating. You could be doing a great job. You can be uh, providing a great product, a great service, but if you're not communicating, and I think of that in a couple of ways, I think about it in not only providing the service, but also with your business partners. Right. You know, I think there's an obligation to have these director's meetings, for instance, with the company. Yeah, absolutely. But if there's no record of it, then <laughs> you're back to that he said, she said. Or yeah, if you exactly. don't do it, then you've got an upset person who thinks they're being cut out. So yeah. good communication, very important. Right. And that's why minutes are so important, right? Just record keeping in general. If there's going to be a meeting, make sure you're taking minutes. Again, mm -hmm. I find that a lot of disputes happen when... A person's or partnerships levels when their ex expectations of obligations and within each other change but good communication and good record keeping in my experience really levels that out and as long as you're keeping up to date with what your expectations are or if you're telling someone ahead of time if you're not going to meet uh, one of your performance obligations that usually really helps with quelling concern and kind of cutting the snake off the head before a larger litigation-esque dispute occurs you know there's an old saying the old saying uh, that quote-unquote old saying that you have <laughs> and that is look you come to a lawyer and you pay for a lawyer uh, at the beginning and you pay a little bit or you pay a lot uh, to litigate yeah so I think in drafting the agreement it's thinking through 
in the agreement what the dispute mechanism might be. Yeah. And one of the controversies I'm aware of, Tanvir, is whether or not there should be an arbitration clause or not. Yeah, our dispute resolution section is going to be exactly what Clay is talking about and whether we're referencing arbitration, I think most commonly it's arbitration, and whether we're referencing um, mediation or some other avenue what, what, of what are, you th- what are your thoughts about that? Before we get into the arbitration, like I like putting in a mediation clause. Do you see any downside to, to a mediation clause? No, I don't see a downside. What about mediation. from a litigator's perspective? Do you see any downside to, to telling the parties to try and mediate before they move on to a court case or, or an arbitration? I don't think so, um, besides my own receipts. No, I don't think so. What about delay? There might be some delay, but I think the benefit that could arise and the potential of that is still worth some delay. I think if you look at the provincial court, they mandate a settlement conference after the pleadings are closed for a reason. Yeah. And I think they even recognize that a lot of disputes can just be dealt with by two people sitting yeah. across a table. Yeah. That's why they do it themselves. So I think if you sort of take a page out of their playbook and download it into your own contracts, it could be only uh, beneficial. I agree. I think why not try? Because, uh, you know, we, we know how expensive litigation is, so how can that hurt, really, other than, yeah. I guess there's a delay. I guess you have I to think, think it through. I think as long as parties know that the mediator is an independent third party that is not connected to either side, they're going to completely be neutral in the circumstance and act, you know, like what most commonly people think, act, quote-unquote, like a judge, I think they're okay with it. And it, if it saves them money, why wouldn't you be okay with it? Why not? I mean, otherwise you're into a process that is very expensive. Okay, now what about arbitration clauses? I think the idea was that arbitration was supposed to save people money. Yeah, what would be the ideal dispute resolution clause to put into a contract where we have, you know, a mom and pop shop selling to another family? Let's say it's a butcher shop. (laughs) So mom and pop shop, I wouldn't necessarily recommend an arbitration clause. First thing in my experience, arbitration is expensive. It's not like a court case where you're going to use taxpayer dollars to fund a courtroom and a judge. The parties have to pay. And it depends if you're going to do a private arbitration or you can go through the BCICAC, which is the Commercial Arbitration Center here in the province. Either way, you're going to have to fund your own arbitration. So if it's a smaller mom and pom shop and there's not really any proprietary thing about their business that they'd want to keep out of the public eye, because remember, arbitrations are private and court cases for the most part are public, then I'd probably recommend saving from any type of arbitration clause. If anything, maybe a mediation clause. Mm -hmm. You see those in some of the CCDC contracts where construction contracts, and they, I think, appreciate the expensiveness of arbitration. I mean, there is some arbitration clauses in there as well. However, on the smaller deals, I would probably go away from it. In my experience, uh, a four-day arbitration, and again, depending on which arbitrator you choose, can be fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. In any event, the fees rack up quick. Yeah. So again, so, so, so what are you paying for in an arbitration, just for our listeners, that you aren't paying for in a court case? Well, first of all, the trier of fact. So in a court case, you're you have a judge, and you're not paying for the judge. Of course, there's cost consequences between the parties. However, in an arbitration, you're paying for the judge. Whoever is going to hear the argument and try the facts, they're going to be paid, and one of you has to pay. Now, usually in my own personal circumstance, both of you put a retainer in towards the arbitrator and then the winner takes all gets their fees covered. But there's also some nuance in that as well. In any event, the major fee is not only booking the arbitrator, the arbitration center, and usually 
uh, those are fees that you're not going to contemplate come litigation. So you got to pay for the trier of fact. You got to pay for the venue. Plus, Absolutely. you've got to have your retainer for for you. Still yeah, cheap. yeah, so, exactly. Uh, so very expensive stuff. But but you did allude to another thing, and that's the uh, privacy. And right. uh, I guess that makes sense if you think your dispute, you want to keep your dispute out of the courts. Yeah. Uh, any other reasons that uh, you think there there should be a, an arbitrator? And, and I've heard one, and that's uh, that you could pick the trier of fact who may have certain skill in an area but you'll just be assigned a judge who may not have any skill in that area yeah so uh the lack of being able to determine uh what the outcome might be you might be able to better determine your outcome by choosing someone who has a little bit more experience in your field but again the the precarious nature of having someone else decide the dispute is still there um so i don't i don't necessarily see uh the, the return on that aspect of it. If I was um, going to give you my opinion on why arbitration clauses should be included, I would say mostly if you have some type of proprietary information that you don't want in public record. And also if you have something that could be dealt with fairly quickly, I mean, everyone, especially because of COVID-19, who has some type of litigation experience or is going through a litigation right now can probably attest to the fact that the courts are backlogged and getting a resolution right now in a timely matter is a bit of a dream. So with arbitration, and again, because you're paying someone to hear it, you might be able to get a lot sooner outcome versus if you're going through the court system, you might be caught up in the backlog that we're currently facing. And with an arbitration, you might be able to find someone who would be able to just deal with that issue solely instead of having a full agenda of issues to deal with. And, and I'm, I'm aware you've got arbitration experience. And w what are your thoughts on things like obtaining documents, you know, doing discoveries and, and getting information uh, in, in an arbitration as opposed to the courts? Because I'm aware that courts have a very, uh, I think it's a, a really good procedure in obtaining, you know, uh, uh, information about the other side's case and the obligation to, to put your documents forward and that. How, how does that work in an arbitration? Yeah, that's a good point. So there's certain rules that are prescribed. Uh, for example, if you go to the BCICAC talking about document production and the like, but it's a bit of a choose your own adventure. So that's a good point that you brought up. In my personal experience, trying to tie someone down to timelines that you've agreed between the two is a little bit more difficult because it's exactly that fact. This is an agreement that's been between both parties. It's not a prescribed set of civil or family rules that have been downloaded onto you by the court that someone else can hang their hat on. Hey, this person hasn't given me their list of documents within 55 days and the pleadings are closed. I can go to court, make an application, get a ruling, get you to pay my fees for having to go. And now you have a court order. And if you don't abide by that court order while well, you're setting yourself up for more penalties down the road. With arbitration, again, in my experience, everything's a little more lax. The arbitrator, again, at that point is usually being paid by both sides of the table. So again, in my experience, I found them to be a little bit more relaxed with, okay, well, yes, document disclosure didn't happen on the agreed upon date, but let's just set everything back two weeks. This person had another court case they had to go to, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I think that that's a good point because uh, the court system, I think has a little bit more foundation in terms of a set procedure for, for proceeding through the natural steps of a litigation, where again, arbitration uh, seems to be a bit of a, a choose your own adventure. Thanks so much for coming and being a guest on our podcast today, Shane. Thanks for having me. FHMP lawyers are rooted in community and ready to help. Send your business law questions to podcast at fhplawyers.com.